Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Conversations about criminal justice reform often revolve around police and prosecutors. But our guest today says it's high time to take a different approach to helping untangle people who are caught up in cycles of criminalization, poverty, and incarceration. Emily Galvin Almanza is the co-founder and executive director of Partners for Justice. She's been a public defender in California and New York. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much for having me. So first and foremost, what is Partners for Justice and tell us about the mission? Yeah, so we are um, a radical plan to transform public defense in America. And specifically what that means is, you know, I was a public defender for the better part of a decade of practice in California and in New York. And I had a chance to work at the Bronx Defenders where they do holistic defense, which is a really powerful way of practicing for the following reason. When a person gets arrested, it's like a bomb goes off in your life. A single arrest can cause you to lose your job, your housing, your uh, custody of your kids, your property, your car, your license to do your job. If you have, you know, a job that requires a license, like even one night in jail, you miss your shift, you lose your job, you can't make rent, now you're in a shelter with the kids. So when I would do this work as a public defender, people were constantly wanting to talk to me about things that were not within the bounds of the criminal case, right? Like, yeah, 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 I know I've got this misdemeanor case, but I've also got this family thing going on. And can you help me with that? Can you help me with this eviction proceeding? Can you help me get my benefits back? I was in Rikers for three weeks. They cut off my benefits. Can you reconnect me? And the thing about being at an office like Bronx Defenders that's um, a joy is that you get to say yes. You get to say, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, my teammate, Adam, is a housing lawyer. He's going to help you with that eviction case. Uh, we do a benefits workshop here, you know, here in the lobby once a week. So, but I kept thinking about, Um, where I started working back in California, thinking, you know, everybody should get to say yes. Public defenders are a uniquely powerful part of the system. We are upstream. We meet people right after they've been arrested at that moment of crisis. We have privilege and confidentiality. So people can tell us their secrets and we can't tell anyone else. We're a safe place to tell someone what's really going on. And when we are empowered to help people overcome the multiple challenges that are created by what is truly an oppressive, racist legal system, um, we are empowered to help them disentangle from that system and move forward with their life. So that you know, every public defender should be able to do this. So we created a system where we, we Partners for Justice, recruit and train brilliant new professionals. We really value people whose intersecting identities or life experience give them insight uh, into our client population. And we train this cohort of new professionals to do all that stuff that we want to say yes to. Benefits applications, housing stabilization, employment stabilization, job readiness, licensure stuff, school, educational continuity. Basically, whatever we can say yes to, we say yes to. And we embed those advocates with public defenders around the country who want to do more but don't have the resources in-house yet. So basically, when we bring you a team, bam, overnight, You now have capacity to work on 10 different service areas that you didn't have capacity to work on before. If you're a community member in that jurisdiction, bam, you've suddenly got a one-stop access to justice shop where when you go to your defender, they're not just working on the criminal case anymore. Now they're working in a holistic, collaborative way that can get you a better outcome. So that's the early stage plan. You know, over time, we hope to change the definition of what a public defender is and can and should be um, in a way that fights for racial justice and fights for futures and opportunities for people in the communities that have been most oppressed by our legal system. 
Yeah, talk to me more about how these issues disproportionately affect black and brown communities in this country. Well, I think if you've had any contact with the criminal legal system, you, you have probably noticed. <laughs> it starts with who we police. Um, the way we police black and brown communities is radically different than the way we police, for example, wealthy white neighborhoods. Um, I think of the Dave Matthews Band concert example, right? Where there's like no shortage of like wealthy white boys on drugs at a Dave Matthews Band concert, but they're not being policed in the same way that my clients in the Bronx are being policed. So the input into the system, policing, starts creating an incredibly racist uh, application of our laws, where the only people who are getting arrested for things, and often um, for manufactured things, for things like going over to your friend's house in another building in New York City and he's not home, so you get arrested for trespassing things, um, are black and brown. Then they enter into a system in which the people who, you know, orchestrate that system are primarily white. The legal profession right now is, I believe, 86% white. So you've got black and brown people who are disproportionately targeted, arrested, um, brought in, you know, physically harmed by police, um, put in jeopardy, brought into a system where they are going to be regarded and judged very rapidly by primarily white personnel. Um, I think it's really important to, to talk about the racial issue at more stages than policing, because we've obviously seen it in sentencing outcomes. We've seen it in the type of charges people get. We've seen situations where, you know, a black woman and a white woman will be charged for the same, say, you know, school district or voting violation, and the black person gets much, much, much more time in prison. Um, and that comes down to so many forms of structural racism. It's actually hard to list them all out, but, you know, the exclusion of black people from juries, for example, um, the whiteness of the bench, the fact that a judge looking at a white judge looking at a white woman in front of him who looks like his sister is going to naturally humanize her in his head. But looking at a woman of a different race who does not look like his family member will dehumanize her because after all, we create a system where we call people offenders and defendants and we put them in custody. We don't put them in a cage on Rikers Island or on a boat. We put them in custody. Custody sounds fine for this offender. I mean, just think about even the language of the system is designed to promote a dehumanization of system users that when you when you you know amplify that with the cross racial dynamics going on really perpetuates an incredibly structurally racist system and environment. Have you seen any meaningful reform that you think can serve as a model? Oh, across a number of areas. I mean, so anytime we stop using the criminal legal system to punish and start using it to problem solve, we're doing better. What I mean by that is there's been ample research on the things that diminish or stop crime, right? People age out of crime. Older people are much less likely to commit crimes. Uh, people with stable housing commit fewer crimes, or I shouldn't say commit because so much of that is based on who police choose to arrest, but the numbers would suggest that there are fewer people arrested who are stably housed, who have higher levels of educational attainment, um, who have a, a steady job and a meaningful work in particular, a living wage. Um, Education, housing, healthcare, you know, being able to afford mental health meds or access to substance use treatment if you need it. Like these are all things that we know um, diminish the need for policing in our communities. But when you look at what the system does most of the time, it's actually just perpetuating cycles of trauma, right? Like what causes people to be more likely to commit harm? Well, trauma, isolation, and lack of opportunity. What does prison create? Trauma, isolation, lack of opportunity. I believe it's Daniel Sered who, who generally puts it that way. 
If our system wanted to actually create safety and opportunity in communities, we would be investing in fostering that kind of stability and opportunity for the people who are at highest risk of being harmed and causing harm, the people in the criminal legal system. So anytime we make a reform that doesn't just offer someone, you know, mandated inpatient jail-like drug treatment with a felony sentence hanging over your head, but actually says, hey, we want to invest in you, follow your lead. What, what do you want? Do, do we want to do medication-assisted treatment? Are you interested in therapy? Are you interested in other forms of supportive care? Like, what do you need? What are your dreams? How can we support that? It feels crappy to the people who want this system to be a punishment bureaucracy, but for people who actually want safer communities, any reform that is community-led and fosters opportunity will make us safer. Do you think that New York City is in any better a place than it was when you were serving as a public defender here? I, I had so many complaints as a public defender. Y'all don't have a real speedy trial rule. That always really bothered me. We have a real good speedy trial rule in California. And I got to New York where there's like no discovery and no speedy trial rule and a, a prison boat. And I was extremely upset and confused. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... It would be great if the governor hadn't rolled back bail reform in the middle of a pandemic. Um, like there, there are bad things that happen here. But, um, you know, the fact that when I look at the DA's race in Manhattan, everyone was fighting over the progressive candidates, that the, the people did not elect the, you know, the fake progressive. They, they went for someone. I, I don't know that progressive is really the right word for prosecution, but that people are interested in more problem solving decarceral leaders even in the prosecution space. Um, I think that's really good that the city and, you know, local environs have been willing to invest in opportunity oriented programs for people in lieu of carceral solutions. That's great. I mean, when you compare New York to somewhere, you know, like my hometown of, of Iowa city, Iowa, like New York has a lot of wonderful opportunities available to people who are entangled in the system. Um, has it gone far enough? No. I mean, this is a city with some of the best restorative justice options on the planet. Um, and yet we see so much gatekeeping. It's something I think about a lot. Um, who do we want to give these restorative opportunities to? Who do we want to invest in, right? Who do we want to help get better? Well, mostly these opportunities are available to the people who are on paper the least experienced in the system. Oh, we get first time offenders. I'm gonna use that word on purpose. First time offenders, we're gonna put them in this program. Nonviolent drug charges. Okay. But the people I really want to see succeed are the people who are actually causing more harm. I want to see the person who is, you know, committing serial burglaries because they have a substance use issue and are engaging in compulsive behavior. I want to get that person the support they need to stop engaging in the compulsive behavior. Well, very often prosecutorial gatekeepers will say, oh, well, that person has too many priors oh, sorry, this wasn't a drug offense. I know he was high when it happened, but it wasn't a drug offense. So they're not allowed in the program. We saw that a lot with um, when Tali Farhadi Weinstein was, was touting some work she'd done in Brooklyn, these alternatives to incarceration. These aren't real alternatives if they're not available to everyone. And so that I think is a place where New York City has a lot of work to do in expanding access to the alternatives the city is building. So does Partners for Justice largely work with people facing serious charges or repeat offenders, or do you also work with those on the lesser end? So yeah, we, um, I never use the word offender unless it's got giant scare quotes around it because we're working with people. Um, we work with anyone. Um, our 
and, and I mean, on any side of the system, um, basically the things people need to succeed are the same if they're being arrested for the first time or if they're coming out of a 20 year sentence. Everybody needs a place to live, meaningful work or education, you know, something to do with their day <laughs> and whatever supportive treatment they need to sustain and feel okay in terms of their mental health. And that can be substance use treatment, that can be mental health treatment. Some people don't need anything, that's great, but people need support, a way, to, a way to spend their time and a place to live. Generally, when people have those three things, they do really, really well. So we work with anyone. Um, oftentimes we expand capacity in offices where there are social work resources, but those social work resources may be largely dedicated to the very serious mental health cases with very, very long sentences on the line, which is great because it makes us available to the person who's being arrested for the first time, who is in fact facing a life sentence because whether you get convicted on that first case may be the difference between walking through the rest of your life, disclosing to employers that you have a record or not. I mean, first arrests are really high stakes cases. We work with um, everything up to, you know, the, the most serious charges you can imagine. I think the thing to remember is since our work is about supporting people to succeed in their community, for people who are not likely to be in their community for quite some time, there's not a ton we can do. But we don't have any um, rules about who we help other than that we only help people who want it. We, we're not prescriptive, we're not directive, we're not showing up telling people what they need. We're supporting people in getting the things they want. How do you counter those who are concerned that being too easy on those who commit crimes means they just get back on the street faster to commit another offense? So there's two ways of looking at that. Um, one is that in a hyper-police jurisdiction, rearrest doesn't actually mean misconduct, right? I mean, I cannot tell you how many cases I've defended that are literally like two teenagers who went to see their friend and the friend wasn't home and they got arrested because it's a NYCHA safe halls building, right? Like sometimes just being black or brown and present on the street gets you arrested. So if that's why people are getting arrested, I can't stop that because that's the racism of policing application. <laughs> like that's, but when you're talking about, you know, Perhaps we should have put somebody in a cage because if we send them home, they're going to engage in real harm. To that, I would say nobody has ever gotten better because they were put in a cage. Jails and prisons aren't built to make people better. They are built to punish people and they're built to confine people. Um, nobody comes home more able to succeed. When you look at the actual studies of what deters crime, it's really, really interesting. Um, long sentences actually aren't a deterrent. I like to suppose that this is because nobody commits a crime being like, I'm going to get caught. And when I get caught, like, oh, if I do it this way, I'll get 20. But if I do it this other way, I'll only get 10. Nobody thinks that way. People do things thinking they're not going to get caught. Um, so when we're thinking of deterrence, long terms in a cage don't, don't actually fix, they don't make anybody safer. They don't fix anybody's issues. Um, Likelihood of accountability actually is deterrent. If there's a 100% chance you are going to be held accountable for whatever you've done, that's much, much more deterrent, regardless of the consequence, than a 10% chance you will get a life sentence. So what I like to point out is that you don't need a cage for accountability. There are many, many different forms of accountability. When someone has had to engage in the legal process, like that is incredibly punishing, actually. And having to jump through hoops to get your life back on track, to stay in your home or find a home, to uh, reacquire or retain your ability to work, to have to fight for the ability to be with your kids. I mean, there are so many different ways that our legal bureaucracy punishes people, even without setting foot in confinement. 
that I would say the work people have to do to disentangle from the system is probably more restorative and important for their future success than any form of trauma the state could impose with with jailing. Can we talk a bit about language and how changing how we refer to people as offenders, for instance, you pointed that out a moment ago, is very important to all of this in changing mindsets and in moving forward with reform. I'm so happy you brought that up. Oh my God, it's so important. It's so important. I was an English major, so <laughs> it's, it's double important from my perspective. Um, yeah, the words we use to describe things completely change the way we think of those things. Um, the terminology of the legal system is anesthetizing. I would have to say, you know, I having stood next to people in an arraignment court in the Bronx who are going to be taken away from their children and put on Rikers Island, and they didn't know when they were going to be able to come home. The pain of that is extraordinary. I I remember going in the back and it was, you know, I had a one-year-old at home at the time and I was looking at the, we had the, you know, baby monitor set up so I could look at it from my phone. I was looking at my daughter sleeping in her crib. It was a night shift. And then going back out there to defend parents who weren't going to make it home to their kids necessarily. And it's the violence of that. And some of this is for misdemeanors. I mean, like the violence of that is pre-bail reform um, was shattering. It's like really hard to withstand being in that space where you are participating in, in the form of, you know, trying to prevent this harm from happening to people. Judges have to do that all day. Judges have to decide to put a human being in a cage. That is horrifying. That is a horrifying act of violence to do to another human being. And in order to get judges and prosecutors to be able to do that over and over again, our system deliberately applies dehumanizing language. So that makes it easier. It's easier for a prosecutor to put the offender in custody than it is for a prosecutor to put Mary Johnson in a cage where she's not going to see her three-year-old again for six months. So when it when we anesthetize system actors, we're removing them from the reality of what they're doing. We're diminishing the human pain involved in the system. And when we diminish the reality of something, when we sort of anesthetize ourselves to it, we're, we're not making good choices about it. We're not making accurate decisions when we don't see the full harm of what we're doing. We think it's okay to keep putting people in custody when we might not think it's okay to keep separating parents and children and putting mom in a cage. <laughs> we are making bad decisions because we've used language that removes us from what we're actually talking about. At the same time, that language follows people. It follows people. Um, telling a person over and over again that they are inmate number such and such. I mean, we've seen examples of how dehumanizing that is for the individual being told that it's a form of torture. It's a form of abuse that's been used in wartime. I mean, telling people, um, I don't ever want to tell someone who's experienced incarceration, how to describe that experience or how they describe themselves. Um, some people own labels that have been dehumanizing in other contexts, and I respect that completely. But, you know, do you want your employer saying, oh, you know, we've considered hiring him, but he's an ex-con, right? The label ex-con has immediately stripped that person of the value they may be bringing to the table as an employee. Um, as someone with, you know, an excitement about an opportunity and a willingness to work really hard. Like, so we, we, the language we choose can strip away very important things about the people we're applying that language to. So I try to be really, really careful to use the most accurate language I can. A person who's experienced incarceration takes more words, but it's more accurate 
than calling someone an inmate, which is, I don't know what an inmate is. I know what a person is. Uh, I don't understand inmate as a noun. It feels like an imagined thing when a person is the reality. What are among the largest challenges that public defenders are facing today? So glad you asked that. So in our program, like our job is to transform public defender offices into wraparound service hubs. Partners for Justice shows up basically in order to offer each community we serve a one-stop shop for all of the things they need to be fully defended across the complex intersecting challenges they face. If you are working two jobs and you got kids at home, it's like just the cognitive load of being asked to engage with six different agencies to get what you need in order to be successful is too much for most people to do. So our vision is to make it very, very easy for the words public defender to mean we'll defend you across all fronts, whatever you need, stabilize you, get you on your way, get you disentangled from the system in the way that a person of privilege naturally can when they can pay $800 an hour for a wraparound team. So our vision is to transform public defenders into one-stop shops. Um, Public defenders need that urgently, but they also need, I mean, across the board, we're in 12 different locations now around the country. So I'm seeing a lot of different versions of public defense around the country. Every single community we have visited wants to be a one-stop shop. Um, The path to getting there is very different. One needs to be responsive to the individual needs of the community in that jurisdiction. Some people are seeing, you know, really high rates of employment disruption from losing their licenses. Other people are seeing family court cases arising from every criminal legal involvement. Other people are seeing, you know, massive civil fortune. Police are stealing people's cars and phones left and right. Um, So what we do, how we expand first, what we emphasize, what we do the most of um, varies by jurisdiction. Every single defender needs us to do this in a way that channels back into their criminal cases. So basically when we When we engage with a person to overcome a bunch of challenges that they've defined, we can then go back to a judge and a prosecutor and say, hey, this person who you were considering putting in jail, actually, she has, you know, gotten reconnected with health benefits. She's back on her meds. Uh, We managed to help her clear her prior convictions from her criminal record. We managed to help her find a job through this job placement program. So now you've got a person who's successfully working, who's, you know, got a safe place for her and her kid to live. Like we have helped, we have worked with this person to achieve her goals. So are you really going to put her in a cage now and disrupt everything we did? No. That's why we find that when we do this work, on average, we save about 180 days per case on which we do mitigation work. Every public defender needs that. When it comes down to the bottom line of what public defenders need, it's all about resourcing. If we resource, if we as a society resource public defenders, and I don't just mean pay parity, I mean like actual resources available to hire advocates, to hire social workers, to hire housing lawyers, to hire immigration lawyers, to hire more criminal defenders so people don't have 400 felony cases. Um, If we resourced public defenders the way we resource police and prosecution, we would be creating much more safety and opportunity in the community because public defenders are free to make bespoke solutions that people actually need, whereas police and prosecutors only have one tool and that's jail. So I would say the number one thing that public defenders need the most is resources. We Partners for Justice is an attempt to make up that resource gap by bringing people pre-trained teams. But, you know, if we had true resource parity, if someone passed a federal law that every state and county needs to implement resource parity for its defense and prosecution system, uh, our legal system would be transformed. Of the 12 jurisdictions you're working in, which would you say have the most challenges where public defenders are faced with the most obstacles? 
everybody has different challenges that I can't, I can't pick, I can't pick a, a most put upon public defender. <laughs> you know, um, we've got defenders um, who are dealing with massive resource inequality and lack of access to their in-custody clients in the deep South. Um, we've got defenders who are dealing with um, incredible caseload problems, um, even in, in California, and uh, the need for um, better access to their in-custody clients and the need to um, expand family defense routine, you know, defense of families uh, out West. In, in Texas, um, it's very interesting because Texas is a state where some localities are very, very different in terms of their values and vision than the state as a whole. So you've got defenders who are working within an incredibly challenging statewide environment, trying to build brilliant defense um, at a very large scale because we've got some really, really big cities and counties, you know, defenders who are trying to build something incredible, but that has to serve hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, it's really complicated to do. So every, every defender's office has different challenges. Um, but I do, I am encouraged by the fact that, you know, as I go around the country trying to figure out where I'm going to bring PFJ next, who, who gets this amazing program next? Generally, I'm screening for jerks. I don't want to bring this amazing program to any office that's like full of dump truck lawyers who don't really want to help their clients succeed, but just, you know, want to get a paycheck and go home. That's the, the stereotype of the public, the, the dump truck public defender, right? Oh, I, I want a paid lawyer. I got a crappy public defender. I don't actually find that very much. I find some public defenders who've been so under-resourced for so long that they're almost afraid to try to do more because they don't want to get their hopes up. But when you give them the tools to get their hopes up and succeed, I find that public defenders really um, go above and beyond in terms of public service. So the challenges are real, but the, the group of people we're talking about resourcing are phenomenal. Now, you currently don't have a presence in New York City. What's the reason for that? Oh, New York City doesn't need me. <laughs> you have so many holistic defender agencies. Um, I, I feel that... Um, this program is really designed to bring collaborative and interdisciplinary practice and expanded resources to, to the jurisdictions that need it the most. And the jurisdictions that need it the most are not in New York City. New York City is blessed with wonderfully structured, brilliant, well-trained public defenders, and who, among whom I was honored to serve. Um, so uh, we'll see. I'm hoping I can maybe bring some resources to, to defenders in upstate New York who are trying to do more and very eager to expand their practice. But you know, if I can be the Johnny Appleseed of, of one-stop shop collaborative defense and transform the definition of defense nationwide into something that's closer to New York City, then I've done my job. What impact has COVID had on the role of public defenders and the work that they're doing? It's been incredibly challenging for public defenders. Um, losing access to our clients as courts delay cases indefinitely is horrible. For one thing, you've got clients who are sitting in jail who should be released for a million different reasons, who are not getting released because you can't even get them into court to get the opportunity to be heard. We had states and localities that were much less responsive to compassionate release concerns and COVID safety concerns than they should have been. I mean, jails have been a hotbed of COVID infection because people are put in confinement where they cannot socially distance and aren't given the PPE to protect themselves, and then kind of left there to rot as the courts shut down and you know, refuse to release people on the scale they must be released for safety. So now you've got defenders who are in a sort of COVID emergence stage as courts try to deal with these incredible backlogs that they have, that they built up during the pandemic. 
So you've got defenders who are very worried about going to court because, you know, maybe court personnel aren't vaccinated or aren't masked. The situation may be unsafe for the defender, but you've got defenders who are willing to put their body between their client and the state. So they're going to show up and they're going to do their job. And meanwhile, the court has created incredible backlogs that public defenders aren't given enough resources or personnel to deal with. So hopefully what we will see um, post-pandemic is a resourcing of public defenders that enables them to tackle this backlog and get people out of jails as rapidly as possible because the jails are still lethally dangerous. I, th- I don't know if you've seen the numbers, but the majority of correctional officers and jail personnel are not vaccinated, um, which means the people inside have no choice but to be around unvaccinated people who, who may or may not choose to wear a mask indoors. I mean, it's just like, it's what people are afraid of from the airlines, but like a million times worse. Um, I would say, interestingly, in my practice, during the pandemic, PFJ was able to help all of our clients more deeply. We, we very easily transitioned into remote work and we tried to you know, leverage what telephone access was available to our in-custody clients. But the stabilization work we are trained to do was actually more important than ever during the pandemic because we needed to do medical services navigation and compassionate release petitions and, you know, um, helping people get through, I mean, my God, the housing crises that have arisen. So what's interesting is our work bets very heavily on the capacity of human beings to help other human beings. We're not tech, we're not an app, we're not automated. We are humans helping other humans. And that became more crucial than ever during the pandemic. And I I expect us to take some of those lessons with us as we try to fight our way out of the hole the criminal legal system is in post-pandemic. Emily, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Emily Galvin Almanza is the co-founder and executive director of Partners for Justice. More info at partnersforjustice.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.